From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker, and the great roller coaster ride of 2023 called the debt limit crisis has finally ended. If you're anything like your budget tracker, you were watching with bated breath Thursday night as the Senate floor uh, finally brought this to a conclusion. They voted 63 to 36 was the final tally for this bipartisan package to suspend the debt limit into 2025 and impose uh, caps on discretionary spending. A little closer of a ver- of, of, of a tally than I thought we'd see uh, for all this you know, talk of the wide bipartisan appeal. Uh, I think only 16 Senate Republicans were willing in the end to vote for this package that they left Speaker Kevin McCarthy to negotiate on their behalf. A little bit of a rebuke maybe to McCarthy there. We can talk about that. And they didn't get it. They couldn't push it across the finish line until they had an agreement from Senate leaders to take up an emergency spending bill for both defense and non-defense, which will further erode these spending caps that Republicans insisted on. So a lot to talk about here today, uh, what it means politically, what it means for the appropriations process. Joining me to do that are two of the best, in my humble opinion, at CQ Roll Call. We have Peter Cohn, the deputy news editor. Thanks for being here, Pete. Thanks, David. And Lindsay McPherson, who covers congressional leadership and the politics of appropriations and virtually everything else Congress does. Thanks again, Lindsay, for being here. Always happy to be here. So we want to get into what this package really means. But before that, just to set the big picture, and Pete, I think I'll turn to you on this because um, you have the, 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 the history here among us. I wasn't here to cover the 2011 debt limit deal. I think you did. There was a lot of concern this year that, that we would see a real bloodbath here, that there was a real risk of this thing blowing up because you have a highly polarized country now, a highly polarized Congress, deeply divided, very narrow majorities uh, in both chambers, a newly energized House Republican majority coming to power this year. There was real concern as this started out this year that this was really going to be a titanic struggle. And it did get plenty ugly. Um, But I'm just wondering from your perspective now, looking back, was it as bad as we feared? They did resolve it. How does this compare, say, to the 2011 battle? What's your thought on that? Yeah, David, I, I, that's a good question. I think, you know, generally the there was a lot of hype about this, but I think partly we in the news media are are responsible for that. There really wasn't the, the popular outcry about this. You didn't see, you know, beyond news articles and Twitter you really didn't see much reaction. I mean, the financial market certainly didn't have much of a reaction to this. I mean, you had some reaction in the in very short term treasury bills right around the time that that you know a, a potential default was possible given the timeline. But that was it. There really was not the type of reaction in the markets that you might expect to see if we were facing this economic catastrophe. Uh, out there, so um, I think you know we we sort of manufactured a crisis to some extent, you know, he, and that's you know that that we had to I mean, that that's that's what we do when people are saying 
nasty things out there that could lead to some sort of calamitous result. We've got to cover it. But I think, you know, generally for people who have been watching this, this type of thing for many, many years, Congress has really never let a catastrophe like this happen. They, they go right to the edge. They go to the last minute. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of, of nastiness, a lot of people saying mean things to each other. But at the end of the day, no, nobody ever really goes over the cliff. Congress always gets a deal at the last minute. So that's kind of the way I've, I've been viewing this. Uh, and I think we, that's the way we saw it play out. Yeah, I did see the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell just maybe a week or so ago his attitude was just, he's just said, everybody needs to relax. <laughs> right. And I, mean, I think you saw, he did, he is pretty prescient, I think, because he did see forthcoming that this was how the, the deal would be resolved uh, with a, a deal between Biden and Speaker McCarthy. And sure enough, it was. And, uh, and he helped uh, make that happen, I guess, just by, by letting those talks proceed and then, and then joining the majority to vote for it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, McConnell has seen a lot more of this than, than certainly that I have. He's been around for a long time. Yeah, He wrote a book called The Long Game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and so if for some reason things had fallen apart between McCarthy and Biden, I don't think it, it's too, too much of a stretch to assume that McConnell and Chuck Schumer probably would have come in and, and cut a deal, which is what I think in the end drove a lot of House conservatives who otherwise are philosophically aligned with the Freedom Caucus to actually support the deal because they said, look, if this thing falls apart, what's going to happen is McConnell and Schumer are going to cook up a deal that is going to be a lot less conservative and we're going to be forced to swallow it here and it's going to pass with you know, maybe 10 Republicans and, and all the Democrats. Yeah, but they did get it done. It was the handiwork of McCarthy and Biden and Lindsey how do you think they come out of this politically now? I mean, the, the stakes were pretty high for McCarthy. He has a very slim margin in, in the House. He's a pretty weak speaker. It took him 15 votes just to get elected speaker. He was walking a real tightrope to make this deal happen and to get it passed. But he, he did get it passed. Didn't make Senate Republicans very happy last night. Biden uh, also managed to get another notch for his bipartisanship credentials uh, how do you see politically, what does this mean for both of them, do you think? Well, let's start with McCarthy. Um, like, I, He was a pretty weak speaker in January. I'd argue he is a much stronger speaker now. I'm not saying he doesn't have some weak spots, but I think the big issue with McCarthy going into the speaker's race is that people didn't find him kind of very ideological and that he could just you know, go with the whims and not have a, you know, set course of thought, like kind of Paul Ryan did, you know, he's a very ideological conservative. And so they wanted to get a little sense of what he would stand for on behalf of the conference. And they pushed him to commit to some things like we've talked a lot about reducing the spending levels back to fiscal 22. And this deal didn't end up there, but he did get a spending cut, depending how you look at it. We can, you know, I'm sure you guys have already debated that on this podcast before. But and some savings that he probably wouldn't, you know, Republicans wouldn't have got under circumstances of a negotiation had they not passed their own bill earlier this year, which was a big feat for McCarthy to get with just, you know, four votes to spare, got 
enough Republicans to vote for a GOP-only debt limit bill that did really set the stage for these negotiations. So I think he comes out of it looking pretty good. He promised two-thirds of his conference would vote for it, and they did. It was a little embarrassing that more Democrats voted for it um, than Republicans, but I think overall he comes out you know, like a good deal making. I think people are pretty pleased other than the Freedom Caucus, which we can talk more about if we want, but they're, they kind of are never really satisfied and had frankly unrealistic expectations that he would be able to hold the line on the House bill and not deviate much from that, given that they had to get this through the Senate as well. As for Biden, I think he... One, one more thing on McCarthy, though. There ha- you know, the Freedom Caucus, the hard right faction there of his party, were pretty furious about this deal. They they thought it was a cop out that it's that the spending cuts aren't nearly deep enough, and they voted against it. They do have this this uh, power. Any one member can can force a vote to oust the speaker. Um, do you think there's any real risk to McCarthy right now? Would 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 anyone in the Freedom Caucus be pushing to do that at this point? Well, I wrote about this. Um, earlier this week that there is some chatter along those lines. Some people are upset that he broke the commitment on the fiscal 22 levels. They also think he broke a commitment um, on getting bills through the rules committee unanimously. Um, That didn't happen with Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, who are in the Freedom Caucus voting against it. Um, And some other things they're taking issue with right now. I think they want to sit down, have some discussions with him. Chip Roy said they, they're going to meet next week to kind of hash out what went wrong here and, you know, the commitments that were broken in their mind and how they kind of recover from that. But like I said, there are a few members who floated it. I think ultimately it'll depend on what they have a conversation as as a group. Yes, it can take any one member, but you don't want to be that member who's out there with no support um, throwing a motion to vacate out there. What I really think will happen is they'll decide to kind of wait out the appropriations process and see what he does there and maybe get him to commit to some things within that and see if he follows through in that case. And then I think they would probably decide after that whether he, you know, because this is just one thing. I think they're willing, for the most part, willing to give him another shot to prove them um, so that he can honor commitments. But we'll have to see how that all plays out. But my sense is that they wouldn't file a motion to vacate. And how do you think Biden looks out of this? So with Biden, I think, you know, his the stakes are a little different for him. He didn't want to negotiate and Democrats really didn't want him to negotiate. They don't want to set this precedent that had already been set in the 2011 and other debt limit fights that, you know, they have to agree to concessions to raise the debt limit. And so in a way, by doing that, you know, that, that weakens him a little bit in the party a bit. Um, but at the end of the day, they don't control the house and they had to get something through the house. So the deal's not bad for Democrats. They did hold the line on some of the big things Republicans were trying to do. Um, you know, they didn't have to get rid of any of the green energy tax credits from the inflation reduction act. They, you know, agreed to roll back some IRS funding, but, um, minimal totals that shouldn't affect the overall goal of increasing tax enforcement and, you know, putting more money into that agency uh, that they, they held the line on the work requirements to the point where um, they actually might have new beneficiaries coming on to snap according to CBO based on some exemptions that they secured and that. So there are different things they got that weren't too bad, but at the end of the day, this wasn't a deal they wanted to cut. And there are some people similar to, you know, on the McCarthy's right, there's, people on Biden's left who are not pleased with the deal and frankly think that 
he could have, you know, they could have held the line more, particularly on the work requirements and permitting reform. They think, you know, they could have done more to keep some of those things out of the deal. They're also upset with the permitting provisions, um, shortening environmental reviews and stuff like that. So they want to, they, the Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal um, wants to sit down with Biden. So similar, basically both right and left want to sit down with their party leaders and kind of talk about, hey, maybe you could have done better here and let's see what we do going forward. So that's kind of where we're at is an evaluation stage from yeah. some angered members. The other thing to point out, though, is this does ensure that Biden will not have to face this problem again before his uh, re-election campaign next year. This this pushes the right, deadline past 2025 so they don't have to face this again. The House Republicans had initially wanted a much shorter term deal uh, and force another debt limit battle next year. And Biden did avoid that. Yeah, that was definitely one of the biggest wins for Democrats is they really were pushing to get this past the 2024 elections. And frankly, this with extraordinary measures, because the, the suspends the debt limit till January 1st, 2025. Um, but that will likely get it into early in that next Congress. So if he's president again, again, if he wins re-election, he'll have to deal with it. But if not, um, that's another president's problem, but we'll see what happens in 2024. Yeah. So Pete, these spending caps now, you know, this was, this was the real, uh, demand of, of house Republicans in negotiating this deal was they wouldn't do just a clean debt limit increase. They insisted on doing caps on discretionary spending to make sort of a small down payment on a fiscal course correction here. And, and uh, starting to try to reduce deficits. The Congressional Budget Office did say this this package would save about $1.5 trillion over a decade. That's something. They do project $20 trillion in deficits, though, over that decade. So it's a small something, but it's something. But the heart of it were, were these two years of enforceable caps on discretionary spending. And it was striking to me that that did not go over well in the Senate yesterday, Thursday. Uh, we saw an explosion on the House floor from some Republicans who said, even this, the deal even allowed a modest increase in defense. And they said, when you adjust for inflation, it's a cut. We need more. And and all of a sudden, by Thursday night, we saw this commitment from Senate leaders that we're going to have a supplemental emergency bill that could cover both defense and non-defense spending. Seems to me that's a uh, an open back door now to to shove in any spending that doesn't make it under these under these caps, right? Well, there was never any prohibition going back even to January and and the bill that they passed that led up to the bill the the conser- more conservative bill they pa- the House passed in April. There's never been any constraint on emergency spending, right? Yeah, but I mean, if, in fact, if you look at <laughs> if you look at the if you look at the Congressional Budget Office uh, estimate of what this is going to mean for spending caps over the next several years. You see, they put in a number that's not, that is above, is far above the cap number. I think it's almost $200 billion above what the overall spending cap would be for fiscal 2024, because they assume there's a whole bunch of other, and it's not just the emergency spending, it's other little adjustments for um, things like going after waste, fraud, and abuse at HHS and, and some other agencies. Uh, money for to fight wildfires. There's a disaster relief kind of formula funding that they that they include. So there's a whole bunch of other things that are already outside of those caps. And then you get into emergency spending, which 
they've also in the last couple of years, particularly last year, and now very much so coming up in this process, there's an agreement that there's going to be a whole bunch of of money in the so-called base budget, which is all for all the kind of regular needs that they appropriate for every year, that is just going to be moved into the emergency category to get outside of those caps. So, I mean, there's already, they call it a side deal, an agreed upon adjustment. So all of these things are already kind of baked in. Which could also be criticized as a big loophole, really, right? Yeah, I, will, I mean, that's both sides spent the week trying to spin that. Republicans yeah. saying, no, 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 no. Here, look at look at what's in the bill. That's the cap. That's what we're talking about. We're cutting spending. We're cutting non-defense, non-veteran spending below 2022 levels, which the, you know technically is true on its face, according to CBO. But you got a whole bunch of side deals that are going to they're going to plump that number up. So anyway, so that's even before you get to emergencies, like real emergencies. Okay, I mean, we know Ukraine's going to need more money. They've always going to need more money. FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, has already told Congress they have a big shortfall coming up to, fight, to, to combat disasters coming up this summer. So they need money for that. So we've always kn- known that. We've known the border is going to be this big issue because of Title 42 ending. You know, and, and so I mean, they were talking about fentanyl yesterday on, on the Senate floor. So there's all these pent up demands. Now, the reality in the Senate is a lot different from the reality in the House. And so, you know, Support on both sides of the aisle in the Senate does not necessarily trans- translate to easy passage in the House. So I don't think what McConnell and Schumer were promising is, you know, we're going to to deliver this to to Biden's desk. There was a commitment to yes, we hear you. We don't we don't think there's enough money for defense or non defense in this deal. So we're going to work with you. But what happens? In the, we, what happens in the House, they can't control. Sure, they can't promise that this gets passed, but it was a commitment from Senate leaders of both parties to push a supplemental spending bill. And what, how you define an emergency yeah, but, is really- but I think the key point, But I think the key point, David, to always remember also is this was going to happen anyway. There was always going to be a supplemental. There was going to be a supplemental, certainly yeah. for Ukraine, yes, um, and for and for disasters, and for disaster we, we know, relief, yes. But I mean, yes. they were talking, but but what they they really were making it much broader uh, yesterday. You had Susan Collins, the top Republican appropriator in the Senate from Maine, uh, saying she wants she needs extra money for shipbuilding, which you know whether that qualifies as an emergency. You know, she wants to. Uh, an expanded Navy fleet. Now, is that an emergency? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder, but but boy, that would normally be considered part of the regular defense budget, which she could maybe get through the back door under a supplemental spending bill, all these other defense priorities that they feel they want to insert. And you had Patty Murray, the chair of appropriations, saying, well, we've also got to address border security. We've got to address fentanyl. Uh, I mean, immigration. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of this that, you know, it, it did make it seem to me that anything that doesn't fit under the spending caps now may get another run through the back door in this in this supplemental bill. Now, you're right, of course, that doesn't mean it can get passed and the, and the House, it may not pass the House that way. It's going to take some tough bargaining. But it, it also did show a clear difference, I think, between where the House is and where the Senate is when it comes to these spending caps how much is too much? The House Republicans are much more eager to cut spending overall, and particularly non-defense spending, than than the Senate really is. I do want to add to that point because you opened the podcast talking about how many you know Senate Republicans voted against that, and a lot of those uh, that opposition came from people who are upset about the defense cap and they wanted to spend more on defense. Right. 
where in the house, I, I looked at extensively at all the no votes and there were only a handful, like two, maybe a few more, but like that specifically cited the defense cap as an issue and wanting to spend more there. Everyone else just was pissed that they didn't cut more spending. So it's really, a you know, a disconnect. And it seems to me it's going to be really hard other than maybe Ukraine supplemental. And even that's not going to be easy to plus up defense through emergency spending. Right. It was, I mean, I think only 16 Senate Republicans voted for this thing. Most, most of them did not. Uh, as you say, for various reasons. I mean, some thought it wasn't tough enough on spending and some and some thought it was too tough when it comes to defense. Right. But would, I mean, my point was it wouldn't have been as, as skewed had the defense issue not been a thing where in the House, it that wasn't a big reason for the, those who voted no. Does that make sense? Okay. One thing this does do, though, Pete, is it does it does now resolve the top line spending levels for the coming fiscal year. So reason to think that that now gets the appropriations process back on track and we we can start seeing these these regular spending bills going and maybe there's a hope of of restoring the process. And now that there's a bipartisan agreement on what the levels should be, right? I think I think they're certainly going to give it a try. I think the Senate Appropriations Committee is going to be a lot more active than it's been for the last few years when they barely, you know, yeah. any markups in committee and the floor has been basically a dead zone for bringing appropriations bills to the floor for the last several years in the Senate. So, yeah, I think the Senate is going to be a lot more active on this and you're going to see something definitely more approaching regular order than we've seen in the past, which is doing individual spending bills, bringing them to the floor. You may get a package here and there. Maybe, you know, they could bundle a couple here and there uh, up into, um, you know, a couple of combo bills. But, um, yeah, at the end of the day, the problem is always going to be is, is going to be the same. I mean, at least at this time, they have the numbers to work off. So that's not going to be the issue. But you're going to see a huge set of differences, most likely between the House and the Senate on these bills that are going to take a long time to hammer out. And, um, you know, there's this new backstop mechanism in there that we uh, did a little primer on this morning, which um, talks about from sponsored by Congressman Tom Massey, who's a Interesting guy, uh, you know, very conservative fiscally and um, ultimately became a very, very key player in getting this deal through. So there's this new backstop mechanism in there that's intended to keep to kind of keep the pressure on lawmakers to, to do the spending bills, get them done before the end of the year, although there's a little grace period there because it, it, it imposes pain on both sides, on defense and non-defense if it doesn't get done. By triggering a, a 1% across the board cut is what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. In a, now, that doesn't happen until April. And, you know, co- typically the, the bills do get done before April. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's a uh, it's it's an it's a neat little backstop. And, um, you know, as 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 Massey said during the Rules Committee debate, you know, it, it, the real enemy here is the Senate. It's not the it's not the Democrats. <laughs> uh, and so this is intended to, to get. And I think the Senate was going to do this anyway. I mean, even without this mechanism in there, the Senate was going to uh, uh, it was Murray, Senators Murray and Collins have since the beginning of the year basically pledged that they're going to rejuvenate the uh, regular order of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Yeah, and Susan Collins on the Senate floor last night did did raise this this issue of 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 Massey and the the sequester backstop, um, and said because of that. Uh, we need to be moving all 12 of the regular appropriations bills. And I, she wanted to, she did secure a commitment from Senate leaders to devote enough floor time 
in coming months to actually get these bills passed on the Senate floor. That was also part of this this last minute haggling to get this debt limit bill across the finish line. There was some concern about this about this across the board cut that could happen if they're too late in passing these bills. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, and that's the intent of it. The intent is is to to make both sides feel some pain if they don't get the bills done. And you know, if they're still in a CR by next by the end of next April, then these across the board hit uh, across the board cuts hit not just anything that hasn't gotten done, but everything that's already gotten done to to that point. So any any full year bills that have already become law, you know, whether in September, October, November, or February. Anything at that point, if there's any CR in effect at the end of next April, everything gets sliced one percent across the board. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean it's it's um, I, you know if if you're a member of the Appropriations Committee and and nobody likes across the board cuts, I mean Steny Hoyer, longtime member of the Appropriations Committee, told us you know the the across the board cuts are terrible. We're supposed to be the ones making the choices on where on where the money goes, and across the board cut is just mechanical. Uh, you know, uh, uh, device that just slashes everything, gives everything a haircut, no matter what the needs are. Very briefly on the Senate leader's statement, I would point out that they were very cautious in how they worded that. They said they would give the floor time if there's cooperation with senators of both parties. And so basically they're saying we're not going to spend, you know, hours going through every closure motion, you guys have to cooperate and come up with some time agreements if we're going to put these on the floor. That's how I read it. I think it is a big loophole there because there's always, you know, people on the right who want things and that pushes things out. So I wouldn't say that guarantees floor time. It's just an effort to attempt to get floor time. Okay. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. And, and also let me just jump in here, back in here. Let, let's also just remember that all of these all this drama on the Senate floor yesterday, all these commitments made by the leadership. Let's remember one one important thing. This bill was always going to pass. The only question was whether people were going to have to, to, to spend the weekend on it. Okay? So the only reason there were any commitments made to Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, or anybody else was because they wanted to go home for the weekend. <laughs> okay. So no commitments actually needed to be made. Now the risk was they get to Monday and Janet Yellen over at Treasury starts having to look for change under the couch cushions right. because they hadn't gotten done yet. But I'm just I'm just saying the only reason any of And if they did drag it out till Monday, that really could have triggered some panic, I think, right? I mean, that was the deadline for right. when the Treasury would be unable to pay all its bills on time. Yeah, they, I mean, they probably could have gotten by for you know a few hours on Monday if this hadn't gotten gotten done yet. I, I imagine that would be the case. You moved it, you know. There would be ways to do that. Delay some yeah, but they really didn't want to drag it out till you know. I mean, the deal was done. It was going through. It was always going to pass. Yeah. There was no question about that. Everything that happened yesterday, all of these commitments with whatever loopholes you you can find in them, they were designed with one purpose in mind to get people on their airplanes by, by this morning. That's it. Yeah. Well, they did. They, it worked. And there's some other stuff in here. I mean, the, the streamline, this was big for Republicans to streamline the permitting process for energy product projects. Uh, that was a big deal to them. It was somewhat controversial. Democrats didn't like some of that. They said they were, you know, shortchanging some of the environmental protections 
uh, and these work requirements got a lot of play. Um, in the end, I'm I'm really not sure they do that much. Uh, there was a lot of concern about them from Democrats, but there are no new work requirements for the Medicaid program. That was a big that was a big red line for Democrats, and they won that fight. There, they sort of expand work requirements for food stamps by raising the age eligibility uh, for for able-bodied adults who don't have kids, but yet they also exempted uh, veterans and the homeless and some foster care kids, uh, people who used to be in foster care, from the work requirements. So, I mean, in the end, the Congressional Budget Office said it's, it's going to add to the rules and actually cost the government money, these work requirements. So... And even then, it adds so few people, uh, I think like 78,000, and, and there's like 42 million people on food stamps. So, I mean, there's almost no effect, I think, in the end to these work requirements, but they've certainly gotten a lot of attention and a lot of play. I don't really see the, I don't really see it doing much other than giving both parties some talking points here. And they were useful to get the bill across because Republicans insisted on them as being part of this deal to make it actually happen and, and get enough support. Any other closing thoughts on the implications of this deal going forward? I'm just happy we don't have to do it again for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would just also make my, my one last parting thought, deep thought, very deep, is that I think a, a very apt metaphor for our, our uh, government's fiscal situation is the fact that our budget tracker, who was running around like a madman on Capitol Hill yesterday, trying to cover the ins and outs of the debt ceiling debate, actually did not have his belt with him. So it was a rough day, and I forgot to wear my belt. Yeah, for all the discussion about belt tightening in the federal <laughs> government, our budget tracker actually had the loosest belt uh, of anybody there on Capitol Hill yesterday. So I just think that that's a very much sums up our our current uh, fiscal situation. It's a, it's a strenuous, uh, dangerous job, but somebody's got to do it. Well, to close out on the point you made, David, though, since you did spend a lot of time on the permitting, the work requirements, Kevin McCarthy did make the point um, in his press conference after the bill passed that he was going to go back for more on all that. And that, you know, now that Democrats are on record supporting some aspects of those things, that it should be easier for them to vote for more. I mean, obviously, that's going to be a battle and unlikely to happen without any reaction, but just want to point out that that might not be the last we hear of these things. They'll keep pushing, right. Well, uh, the debt limit deal is done, and that's all the time we have for now. If you like what you hear here, you can sign up for the CQ Budget newsletter. You can find that at CQ.com. You can find all of our coverage on the debt limit and what it means at CQ.com or RollCall.com. Thanks again to Peter Cohn and Lindsay McPherson for being here with me. Thanks, guys. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We'll see you next time.